to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And if you need a Bible, just raise your hand up nice and high, and the ushers will uh, bring one to you so that you can follow along with us in our study. And we're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we'll be picking up in verse 6. One more, Stu. The topic of end times prophecy has always been uh, dear to me. It, it was one of those things that when I first got saved, piqued my interest a little bit. I'd never heard about any of these things. You know, you kind of hear about the end of the world. You hear words like apocalypse or, uh, you, you know, whatever, and Armageddon, you know. And, 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 and those are just words until you come to the, to the Lord. And then he opens up the word of God to you and you begin to see what all of those things begin to mean. And, and it was exciting for me as a new Christian, having my eyes open to the truth of God's word to begin to study and understand those things. And, and, it, and it really lent in a lot of ways to my, uh, you know, becoming a Bible student, you know, just seeing how God laid it all out and how it lined up in scripture, it it just whet my appetite for the whole of scripture. And so this topic, I I like this topic. However, it isn't my favorite topic to teach. I don't really enjoy, you know, I I would so much rather be sharing about an attribute of God's character or, you know, working through a chapter on love or, you know, on some thing, uh, you know, that just kind of like brings us right into the throne room of God, you know, and I, you know, so, so I like this topic. It's not my favorite topic to teach, although because of the atmosphere out there right now and all of the things going on, it's a little bit fun right now, just because of how in line what the Bible says is with what we're seeing happen. It's like you can go to the news first and then check the Bible, you know, and, and that's backwards, even from 10 years ago. And it's, it's amazing uh, how that works. So if you're here, I say that to say this, if you're here for the first time tonight, this is a, w- the reason why we are talking about end times prophecy is not because of the news. It's because we go line upon line chapter by chapter, book by book, through the Bible, and we just happen to be in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And what, what I love about just teaching the Word, going right through it and studying the whole Bible, is that what you get is you get the full counsel of God's Word. Everything that God has to say, you get all of it, and you get it in the perfect proportion. And so, you know, if you're here tonight and this is your first time, don't think this is one of those churches, you know, they're weird, they're, you know, they're going to tell me to drink some Kool-Aid or something. No, no, it's not like that. We're, we're just simply teaching the Bible and God tells us what's coming and we just happen to be in very exciting times, uh, you know, in, in our lives and in the world. So uh, we're in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, we're talking about the last times and we left off in the middle of the chapter... Uh, and, and we were cut short, so we were really in mid-sentence. So if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to pick up a recording of that. You can get CDs of it in the back, or you can download it off the Internet, just so you can get the continuity of, of the whole uh, entire thing. But here's what's happening, just to bring you up to speed. The Thessalonian believers had received a letter from Paul, First Thessalonians that explained to them some of the end time scenario. And receiving that letter, some of them had questions. They didn't quite understand perfectly all of the things that Paul was saying. And so they sent questions back to Paul seeking clarity. And Paul immediately then wrote 2 Thessalonians to expand upon some of the things that he had mentioned to them before. And those things specifically were concerning the end times. Uh, the Antichrist, the day of the Lord, which is the tribulation or the time when God pours out his wrath and his judgment upon the world. And, and, and so Paul is writing to them, explaining to them the sequence of events and how these things are going to play out in the day when God raptures his church and then judges the world for sin. You know, that time we call the day of the Lord when all of those things uh, come down and happen. And so 
you know, the Thessalonians were told by someone that they were living in the time of God's judgment, the seven-year tribulation. And Paul writes, and he says, don't be deceived. You're not living in that day. If you were living in that day, you would know it. It would be perfectly evident and clear to you. And then he begins to explain to them that that day cannot come. And he uses two things as precursors. He says, first, there will be a falling away or an apostasy. And second of all, the man of sin will be revealed. That is the Antichrist. Uh, and so where we left off as I was explaining to you the scenario or the order of events that are going to lead up to the revelation of this man that is called the Antichrist. And we talked about how he will arise out of pure chaos that ensues upon planet Earth. The stability of the Middle East will unravel and the shockwaves of that you know, unraveling is going to affect the whole world. There's going to be problems. You know, the economies of the world are going to falter and fail. And we know what happens. You're seeing the news clips of what's happening today in Spain and in Greece and in various places around the world. And it causes unrest. It destabilizes things. And the whole world is going to sink into this chaotic situation. And out of that... This man is going to arise that seems to be the perfect solution to all the problems that the world is facing. He's going to bring stability. He's going to bring calm. He's going to bring a false peace and sense of security. He's going to bring stability and peace to the Middle East. He's going to allow the Jews to rebuild their temple. Uh, There'll be a a covenant, you know, that's going to allow that to happen. And that's the signal. When when that happens, that's the beginning of that last seven-year period of time. And so we were talking about all of those things. And where we resume as we pick up in uh, verse 6 is the question of what is holding him back. What is holding back the forces of evil or the agenda of Satan from being fulfilled upon the earth? His, and we talked about this last week, you know, that Satan has an agenda. He wants to sit in the throne of God, declaring himself that he is God and to be worshipped by man. And he, he's had this from the very beginning. Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. We saw it in Babylon in Daniel chapter 3 and, 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 and pictured throughout history, times where Satan has tried to seize control of mankind in totality. And yet he's never been able to succeed, but he will. And so, you know, everything's spiraling towards that, but what's keeping him back? If you look with me at verse 6, it says here, it says, and now you know what withholdeth that he, that is the Antichrist, this man of sin, might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth, that word is in the King James, it means restrains, he who now restrains, will restrain until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked or wicked one be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. He talks about this process whereby Satan is seeking to usurp authority over mankind and he'll do it through the person of the Antichrist. And he puts this heading on that process. He calls it here the mystery of iniquity. And it's the only time in the Bible that that phrase is used, where those words are put together in that sequence of the mystery of iniquity. Eleven times the word mystery appears, and it is in various contexts. The mystery of Israel, the mystery of Christ in you, the mystery, you know, uh, uh, and there's various times that that word is used, but here it's put with the word iniquity, and it's speaking of a very specific thing, this, this mystery of iniquity. And what it is, it speaks to us about a process that leads to a product, 
It's a process that leads to a very specific place. And that place is told to us clearly back in verse 4. It's leading to this, that he, the Antichrist, who opposes and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. That this is the product, the end game for Satan upon the earth. That he wants to sit in the throne of God, declaring himself that he is God. That in the Bible, various times in the Bible, is called the abomination of desolation. It's a very specific point in time that will come, it is yet future, when Satan will go into, through the person of the Antichrist again, he will go into the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem three and a half years after the covenant is signed that allows them to build it, and he will go in there, and he will go into the forbidden place, the Holy of Holies, and he will sit there, declare himself to be God, and demand to be worshipped. And two things will happen at that point. Number one is that the Jews will wake up and realize he's not their Messiah. But the rest of the world is going to believe it and bow down and worship him as God because of what he's done for them and for what he's been able to produce and show them through signs and wonders. That is where everything is headed. And so that's the product, but the process of bringing the world to that point is what he's talking about when he says the mystery of iniquity and he speaks of it as something that was already at work even in Paul's day. He says the mystery of iniquity doth already work. It's already happening. But there's something holding it back. So the mystery of iniquity is the process whereby Satan brings the world into a place where they will be in subjection to the Antichrist when he comes upon the scene. And the process that is called the mystery of iniquity is the act, listen carefully, of removing everything that will restrain and keep him back from accomplishing his goal. You recall from our study last week that there were times in history when when. Satan tried before. He tried at the Tower of Babel, but his plan was thwarted because God confused the language. He was thwarted by the influence of God upon the earth. He tried it in Daniel chapter 3 in the days of Nebuchadnezzar, a perfect paradigm of the end time scenario. If you look at that chapter, that's very clear to you. You see that, man, God put that chapter there to show us it's a precursor to what is yet to come. But yet his plan was thwarted, it was hindered, it was restricted, restrained. How? By three Jewish men who refused to play along. And it resulted in the salvation of Nebuchadnezzar, the king who was supposed to play for Satan. And so his plan has been thwarted. But since that day, even to the present, till right now, he's been in the process of seeking to remove everything that would hinder what is necessary for him to move in and grab the heart of man in totality and literally bring it to hell. The only thing that is necessary for darkness to prevail is the removal of light. And so that is the mystery of iniquity. It is the removing of everything that restricts and restrains Satan from bringing the world to its final place that is described to us there in verse 4. So the question that's before us is, what are the things in the world right now that are a restraint or that keep back Satan from bringing forward this Antichrist, this man that gets his power from hell itself that will rule the world as a world dictator? What is restraining him in this day? Three things for your consideration. First of all, on the geopolitical stage, For the past few hundred years, the United States of America has been a great restraining force, keeping Satan from controlling the world. Our country was founded upon the principles of freedom and independence. Our constitution was framed upon the standards, morals, and ways of God's holy word and the the ways that he has set forth to straighten narrow paths. 
When you read the original writings of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, Scripture is quoted. God is honored and venerated and held in such high esteem amongst what our nation was to be. And because of how our nation was formed and because of the path our nation took in putting God first in all things, God exalted us among the nations of the world. And the United States of America became a superpower amongst all nations, the leader of the free world, because of all that God had done in the establishing of our country. And in that, Satan would never be able to bring mankind into universal slavery because of those very things, those strongholds that were put in his way. But for the past hundred years now, Satan has been very subtly and very patiently and yet very successfully dismantling those things and taking them out from being an influence that would keep him from doing his will upon the world. In the early 1900s, with the establishment of the Federal Reserve, the U.S. Congress took control of our monetary system, our economy, out of the hands of the people and placed it into the hand of private international bankers. The Federal Reserve is not a government agency. It is run by private banks. And the sovereignty of our currency was taken out of the hands of the people, and it was put into the hands of these people. And the result of that was a process whereby international bankers began literally farming and harvesting the wealth and property of the American people. And, and I so wish I could get into that a little bit right now and explain it because it's, it's fascinating just to see how it's happened and the sleight of hand and the things that have taken place, uh, you know, over the years because of uh, that thing that's happened. But, it, but, but it's been a source of dismantling the strength of our economy and, and also of enslaving the people. And, and really, when you think about it, when you look at it historically, The road that led us to where we are today as it concerns our finance and our economy, it started a hundred years ago. The road that led us to where we are today started a hundred years ago. It's not George Bush's fault. It's not Bill Clinton's fault. It was the fault of those who, whether they knew what they were doing or whether they were deceived or pressured into that, of yielding the sovereignty of the currency out of our hands. Thomas Jefferson had the foresight to know what would happen if we did this. He said this in 1815, about 200 years ago in a letter. He said, I believe that banking institutions are more dangerous to our liberties than standing armies. If the American people ever allow private banks to control the issuing of their currency, the banks and the corporations that will grow up around the banks will deprive the people of all property until their children wake up homeless on the continent their fathers conquered. The issuing power should be taken from the banks and restored to the people to whom it properly belongs. And what insight for someone to see before it happened what would happen if what happened happened. And we're living the consequences of it. We've been weakened and we've been enslaved. We've been taken down, dismantled. Not just in our economy, not just in our standing in the free world, but also through the removal of God from every area of public life in the United States of America. God has been removed from the schools, as we all know. He's been removed from the media, from entertainment outlets. Or he's maligned, mocked, or twisted and skewed in his doctrine in some way. He's been removed from political platforms, and it's become a shame to speak of him in public discourse. You don't talk about politics and religion. It's politically incorrect in this country. And the influence of God has been almost all removed from what our country is and the principles that founded it and started it. And We've seen the results, and we're seeing the results of that, aren't we? Imagine with me 15 years ago. You can go back in time in your mind. And 15 years ago, it's a Friday night, and the work week is over, and you've eaten dinner and cleaned up, and now it's time to sit down and relax with your, TV, your, your family and watch some TV. And so, you know, you pop up a big bowl of popcorn, and the whole family sits down, and you sit down, and you're going to 
turn it on and watch Full House, you know. And, and DJ Tanner is going to be scandalized by her younger sister Stephanie in some way, and you know, because of something that she didn't get to do or whatever. And, and then following that, you'll watch Family Matters. And Carl Winslow will be scandalized by Steve Urkel as his coffee is spilled in his lap. And, you know, and, and then you'll watch Perfect Strangers. And Balki Bartakamus will say, get out of this city, you know. And, 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 and you'll, you'll watch that. And, and then imagine with me 15 years ago that you're watching that. And in between shows, you're watching the TV commercial. And all of a sudden, it says, stay tuned. Tune in next week for the season premiere of... The new normal, where two homosexual men will be befriended by a single mom and they'll move in together because she needs help raising her kids. And and all of the issues and everything else that goes along with the openness of putting it out. Stay tuned in next week for TGI Friday while we put this on network television. That wouldn't happen, would it? You couldn't even imagine something like that happening in that time. And yet we see it today, and it's open, and it's unashamed, and even Christians embrace it and say, oh, it's only entertainment, it's only television, it's not real life. It is real life. You see, the influence of God has been removed. The moral compass that was once our nation is gone. And sadly, the superpower that we once were, not just in the world's economy, But as the light of the world, the salt of the earth, as the United States of America, on the geopolitical stage, it's been removed. We no longer are what we once were. At one point, we were a restraining factor in seeing the end times events culminate. We no longer are. That's just the truth. It's just the fact of the matter. We don't need to be bombed or taken out. We've been poisoned from within. And so the United States of America, no longer on that stage, in that place, restraining the work of Satan. Not just the USA geopolitically, but also Israel biblically and religiously, a restraining factor in Satan. Now, it is true that most Jews, most that have Israeli blood or claim Israeli right of identification, that most of them are just secular Jews. They think of their Jewish heritage the same way we would think of our German heritage or Irish or, or whatever else that we might be, you know. And, and there's no religious, uh, you know, connotation to their Jewishness. They're just Jews. That's what they are. They're secular Jews. But there are many amongst those that call themselves Jews that are Orthodox Jews, that place great weight upon their heritage and who they are and where they've come from and the biblical nature of of, of what they are and who they are and what's to come. And they will not go along with Antichrist's program. They will not assimilate and become one with the rest of the world, which is part of what he needs. They just won't do it. They won't go along. So how is Satan, how is the Antichrist going to keep them from restraining, just as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego restrained him from doing it in Nebuchadnezzar's day? How is he going to do that? Well, it is also true that the Jewish people are still awaiting the coming of their Messiah. They don't accept that Jesus Christ was their promised Messiah, their Savior. And so they're still waiting for their Savior to come. And if you ask any Jew today, Orthodox or otherwise, how they will know when their Messiah is come, the answer you will receive is he will bring peace and stability in our region and he will rebuild our temple. And that's what they are looking for. And that's exactly what the Antichrist is going to do. And so his way of removing that obstacle, that restraining force from seeing his will imposed upon humanity is he will literally purchase them with peace and with a temple. And for three and a half years, he will have their allegiance, enough time for him to do what it is that he was intending to do. By the way, he doesn't succeed if you read the end of the chapter. I just ruined it. You're like, oh, we can go now, you know. We know the end of the story, you know. So Israel, a a hindering force from from Satan completing his, his plan upon the earth. So not just Israel, but I believe that the single greatest restraint 
The single greatest thing that keeps Satan from accomplishing his will upon the earth is the presence of the church upon the earth. Jesus said that you are the light of the world. Satan is pure darkness. His motive and his will is to usher in a time of pure darkness where there is no light at all. Jesus said that you're the salt of the earth, that which preserves, that which brings flavor, that which gives some zest, some life. But he says if the salt loses its savor, if the salt is no more, then the world is good for nothing. But it's pure evil at that point. There's nothing redeemable about it. And so the presence of salt and light in the world is a restraining factor in keeping Satan at bay. He cannot do what it is that he wants to do. Think about the way in which the church is salt and light. Because, you know, we often think that we're weak, that the church is is impotent, that we're not doing anything. But think about every source of good that is in this world. In some way, it is carrying the banner of Christ. All of the great humanitarian causes that are real in this world carry the banner of the gospel with them the missions organizations that are going into the world and making a difference in the name of Jesus, washing feet, feeding people, taking care of those that are sick, building orphanages and hospitals. That's all the light of the world. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that those things are being done. Those that are on the front lines of the political battle, standing up for seeking to preserve the things of the word of God that would govern and dictate a people the ACLJ and the wall builders and those people that are holding forth the lamp of God's truth before the people that lead. It's the cause of Christ. They're the salt of the earth. They're the light of the world. The influence that's upon the young people in our world today, in our campuses and schools, youth for Christ and campus life and campus crusade for Christ and InterVarsity fellowship and, and, and all of those, those organizations that are seeking to reach and shed light upon the darkness that's in this world and reaching these people and they're having an effect. Though it be light, though it be little, though it be obscured and though the darkness grows, they're still there. They're still holding the torch. Think of all the churches in the United States of America and around the world that are still holding forth the lamp of God's word. They haven't caved into false doctrines and given into, you know, the doctrines of demons and teaching with itching ears, but they're still holding forth the lamp of God's word, the gospel of Christ, the blood of Jesus and the cross and repentance and that which saves a soul. They're holding it forth and they're standing behind those that are going out and doing something in the name of Christ. And there's so much of that that's going on in the world. And as long as that is happening, Satan cannot do what the Bible says he ultimately will do. And so that restraint must be removed. How is Satan going to remove the restraint of the church? He can't. That's a big secret. He can't. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus looked at Peter and he prophesied and he said, thou art Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He can weaken nations. He can take down governments. He can control economies. He can purchase a nation of Israel with a temple and with a false peace, but he cannot take down the church. I hope you know who you are tonight. I hope you know who you are and where you stand as those that are believers in Jesus Christ. He can't touch you. He can't remove you. He can try to trip you up. He can lie to you. He can shout condemnation. He can seek to get you to go to the sideline, but he can't touch you. He can do nothing. You say, well, if we're a restraining force and he needs us out of the way and yet his agenda will be fulfilled, then what happens? Well, you know what happens, don't you? The rapture will be taken out of the way. In fact, that's what it says. If you notice there, back in verse uh, 7, it says, For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now restrains will restrain until he be taken out of the way. Now, the, the big debate is always about that word he. It's like he, hey, the church is a she, right? We're the bride of Christ. We're not the he, we're the she. So who is the he? Is the he the Holy Ghost or is the he the church? Who is the he? The word 
he in the Greek, and you can check me on this. I hope you do. I'll even tell you the Strong's number. It's 3588, and it is the Greek word ho, H-O. You'll even remember how to spell it. And here's what ho means. Here's how ho is translated throughout the Bible. The, this, that, one, he, she, and it. That is how ho is used in the Bible. The, this, that, one, he, she, and it. And it is most often translated the. The most ho is used throughout the Bible is the word the when you're going. And so you can't say, well, it says he and not she, so therefore it can't be the church. It is a gender neutral term. What strikes me even more than that is not the word he, but the word taken. You know what the word taken means? The word taken means to arise. It means, oh goodness, I can't find it. It means to arise, there it is, to arise, to be assembled, to be brought, or to be fulfilled. Listen to that again. To arise, to be assembled, to be brought, or to be fulfilled. And he says, that which restrains will restrain until the, the, this, that, one, he, she, or it is arisen, assembled, brought, or fulfilled. It's a reference to the rapture when that final restraint is removed out of the way, opening the door for all evil and all hell, literally, to break forth upon the world. Can you imagine with me for one minute what this dark world that we live in right now would look like one moment after all of the light that remains is taken out? There is no more focus on the family. There is no more James Dobson or Jay Seculo or the wall builders. There is no more Roger Oakland or Dave Hunt standing for truth. There is no more Bible radio that at least puts the gospel in people's ears if they want it. There are no more churches or Bible teachers or or people that hold forth and herald God's truth. It's gone. There's absolutely no influence of it at all upon the world. And can you imagine for one minute what a world like that is like? I, I was brought up in, in a little town called Hilton, and we didn't say, we said Hilton. You know, it was that rural, Hilton, and it was a cow town. It was the a farm town of farm towns, you know, rural America. And I went to college at SUNY Purchase, which you all know where that is, just, just around the White Plains area. And so I went from rural, backwoods, farm country, you know, to SUNY Purchase. And if you've ever been to SUNY Purchase, I pray you never have to go to SUNY Purchase. You know. But I remember when I got there for the first time, and I, don't, I, I, I can't even explain why I chose that school, you know. but I, I go there and I remember. I remember going there for the first time. I was by myself, and I opened the car door to get out in the parking lot there at the school, and I literally felt a wave of evil come over me. Not saved, I was not a Christian, I wasn't seeking God, I wasn't sensitive to spiritual things, but I remember I just went, and I shuddered, and I could almost feel it like it was just evil. There was this evil, you know, and that place is evil. (laughs) It's a terrible place, you know. Evil, purely, you know. But can you imagine for one minute, if you multiply that, that presence of evil, the absence of all that is holy and right, Multiply it times a billion. What does a world look like that like that look like? Where everyone on the planet is unified in their purpose to just do one thing is fulfill themselves. And there's no restraint. There's no one telling them that they shouldn't. There's no more feeling of guilt. There's no more feeling of shame. There is no more shame. Shame doesn't exist. Do what thou wilt becomes the whole of the law. What does a world like that look like? That's the world that will be the moment after the rapture happens when every influence and salt and light is gone. It's gone. And the answer is there will be thick darkness. As soon as that restraint of what is salt and what is light is taken out of the way, it tells us there in verse 8, it says, and then shall that wicked one be revealed. Not before the church is removed, but after the church is removed. Until the restrainer is taken. He will not make his move, but as soon as the restrainer is, then he will advance his cause. And it says, then shall that wicked be revealed, 
whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Now, we, in our time right now, we look across the Atlantic pond, you know, that little ocean that separates us from the rest of what's going on out there. And what we see is we see the stage set in the Middle East for all chaos to break out. You have Iran who is advancing with a nuclear program that the whole world has their eye on saying, stop it. Especially this little tiny nation of Israel that has an unbelievable arsenal and ability. And also the United States of America that has the arsenal and the ability, but does not have the will nor the money to do anything about it. And so you have Israel, I mean, Iran advancing this cause, and you have Israel threatening a preemptive strike, knowing that if there is a nuclear Iran, Iran will use their nuclear capabilities to then wipe out this little nation of Israel. And so Israel is warning, saying, we will not let you have a bomb. Not only will we not let you have a bomb, but we're not even going to let you get to the point where we can't stop you from having a bomb. And so Israel is saying, there's no more time. We're no longer going to wait for diplomacy to try to work when diplomacy hasn't worked. And so we're going to preemptively strike on you. Now, Iran, just two days ago, has thundered back and said, well, maybe we're going to pre-strike you. You know, if we feel like you're going to pre-strike us, we're going to pre-pre-strike you, and there won't be, you know. And and now you have this escalation that's going on, and, and you have all of these nations that are surrounding Israel, including Egypt now, and Libya, and all of these other ones, that have all of their rockets and all of their forces aimed at this little tiny state of Israel with the stated purpose of wiping them off the map, of eliminating them. Their vision, expressed and open, is an Israel-free Middle East. Now, you and I know that ain't going to happen because God already told us that it isn't going to happen, that he's bringing his people back. Ezekiel chapter 38 says that he's going to put them to shame. Psalm 2 says that the Lord will laugh and he will have them in confusion. It says that they'll turn their swords upon one another, and it's not going to work. It's not going to happen. What we see is we see all of the things that the Bible has foretold that would take place in the last days, the dominoes that would set up, that would ultimately usher in what we're talking about, the very day of the Lord. We see those things set up perfectly right there. Now, here's what Iran has said, is that if we get hit or if we get drawn into conflict, Our recourse is going to be, first of all, to swiftly destroy the Zionists, which is Israel. But also, we will attack every base and embassy and representation of the United States of America that is in our reach, which is about 2,000 kilometers. Now, if they do that and they begin to bomb our embassies or the ships that we have there in the Persian Gulf guarding the Strait of Hormuz and all that kind of thing, if they begin to do that, we immediately get drawn into the conflict. And if we get drawn into the conflict, it's only a matter of time before Russia gets involved in the conflict, which Ezekiel 38 says that they're going to get involved in the conflict. And once Russia gets involved in the conflict, which is aligned with Iran and with Syria and these various things, who then gets involved and where does this thing go? And if you have what many are saying is the potential of World War III, and I do say if, I'm not saying that this is absolutely going to happen, but if this happens, if there is a World War III, what are the ramifications of that? In a global economic situation such as we are facing right now, you have total economic collapse. It, it, it cannot be sustained any longer. I mean, we're seeing the beginning of it now. The, the, the strike that's taking place or took place in Chicago with the teachers. We're only making $75,000 a year. This is ridiculous. Starting pay, seventy-five grand. Who gets, you know, and, and, and they're appalled at their $75,000 starting salary. And so they're on, they strike, you know. And, of course, then they're forced back in. But see, what happens when people can't make what they're used to making and they can't have what they're used to having, how do people respond? We see it happening in Greece. We see it happening in Spain. Because when governments and municipalities, which have purchased literally the system, say, we can't afford to pay what's been paid in the past, the people say, well, you're going to pay it over our dead bodies. And so you have the breakdown of the economy of the currency, and then you see that unraveling then into chaos and instability. 
And that's what we see on the brink of. Did you know that the Department of Homeland Security, maybe if you know this, I, I mean, they just purchased 1.4 billion rounds of ammunition. That's not the Marines or the Army or, you know, the Navy that go fight wars over there. That's Department of Homeland Security. That's for here. Over half of those were rounds that are used in sniper rifles and that kind of thing, not machine guns and, you know, stuff that's used for battle. That's riot control stuff, you know. They've bought riot gear and all that stuff. Why? Because they know the sensitivity of the situation and what happens once the dominoes begin to fall and these effects begin to take place. 1.4 billion. Do you know how big of a number that is? That's, that's enough to supply the Iraq war with ammunition for 20 years. I'm not making that up. That's enough to give four bullets to every man, woman, and child, and baby in the United States of America. Just give them four bullets. That's 1.4 billion, the largest purchase of ammunition ever by the Department of Homeland Security by leaps and bounds. Why? Why do they need that? Can you see the writing on the wall of the, the, the severity of the days that we live in? How the dominoes will just begin to fall and how the world could so quickly just be in that place of chaos. Now, we get that from just watching the news. You, you just look at what's going on out there and you begin to think through the effect of what will happen and, and, and that's where it takes you. But what happens when you bring that to the Bible? Turn with me quickly to keep a finger here, but turn with me to Revelation chapter 6. Let me show you something. (laughs) Revelation chapter 6 begins with the the, the revelation of the rider of the white horse. It's the four horsemen of the apocalypse. That's what it's been known as. The Bible doesn't call it that. Men call it that. But that's the passage that we're looking at. And the rider on the white horse that's pictured in verse 2, he says, and I saw and behold a white horse. And the reason it's a white horse is because he's the antichrist or in place of Christ. And he goes forth as a counterfeit of him who will come at the end riding on a white horse. And it says, he was on a white horse, and him that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. It's exactly what the Antichrist will do. That's the first horse. Then, verse 4 tells us the second horse. It says, and then there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another, and there was given unto him a great sword. And then, verse 5, And when he had opened the third seal, I heard a third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. And see that thou hurt not the oil and the wine. And then the fourth horseman, verse 8, it says, And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was death. And hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. Understand the sequence of what we just heard. Is that first you have the move of the Antichrist to now begin to go forward. The rider on the white horse goes forth with a bow, conquering him to conquer. The second thing that happens is that peace is taken from the earth. People begin to kill each other. The third thing that happens is the economies of the world crash, and the food supply is dried up. There's There's food shortage, and there's no more money. The balances are in his hand, a measure of wheat for a penny. But hurt not the oil and the wine, that which is given to the rich. The rich will never be hurt in that context. And then that's followed with absolute chaos as one-fourth of the world's population is then destroyed with hunger, with pestilence, by the sword, and with the beasts of the earth. Now listen. Think about what's going on out there and, and what could reasonably happen and what the Bible tells us is going to happen. And can you see the similarities? And out of that chaos now comes forth this man. There's no more presence of the church. There's no more light in the world. All hell is broken out on the earth. And here now is the man that has the solution. 
he can rebuild. By the time you get to Revelation chapter 18 and you see the rebuilding, oh, it says that they stand afar off and they say, look at what's being destroyed, the riches of it, the beauty of it. So he's going to come forward and he's going to bring forth the solution. And it's amazing how you can look at the Bible and you just see it. Now, here's the good news, because some of you are like, oh, you know, what's going to happen? Here's the good news. Listen, that's Revelation chapter 6. We're out in chapter 4. <laughs> okay? Now, here, and here's the point, is that if this, if what we're seeing right now, the escalation of the conflict over there, if this is the domino that's going to bring us into the day of, the, of Christ, we're out of here before the first bomb blows. So don't fear, you know, in the sense of like, oh, no, no, no. We're out. Then the wicked one is revealed. All hell breaks loose. But then out of that chaos, he brings perfect calm. He's going to restore. And part of that will be the rebuilding of the covenant of the Jews. Now, I love this part of this text. Because up to here, it's been very dismal, right? (laughs) But watch this. It says, and then shall that wicked be revealed. And here it is. So matter of fact whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. It's that quick. It's not like this whole process. Well, then God is going to somehow get underneath and he's going to begin to take out his devices and restrain him. No, 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 just God's going to consume him with the brightness of his coming and he'll be finished, he'll be completed. And I love that about the Lord is that it's just so, it's, it, it says in Ephesians that he is far above all principalities and powers. In the things of this world, There's, he has no match, Satan, our enemy, for our Lord. I love Psalm chapter 2, if you're not very well familiar with it, you know, but it's such a great prophetic psalm of, of, of really what's, what's to come and really the days that we're living in. He says, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? For they have gathered themselves together and set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us cast their cords from us and break their bands from us you know and, and it's this the whole thing it's funny you know people say well there's a conspiracy and everything is it's the Bilderbergers and the illuminati and there's a, yeah there's a conspiracy i know but there's a bigger conspiracy because it says that the lord shall laugh because he will have them in derision or in confusion and that's it Then it goes on, it moves on to greater things, telling basically saying, get right with the Lord, get on the right team, you know. And the same thing that Paul does here, he says, yeah, there's a conspiracy. Satan's trying to control the world. That's what this is all about. But there's an even bigger conspiracy because God's out-conspired Satan. And the Lord shall laugh and have him in confusion, and he'll consume him with the brightness of his coming. It's not going to work, see. And so he said, he will consume him with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. And then it describes Antichrist and it answers the next question that we would all have is what happens to the people that are left behind after the rapture? What happens to the people that don't go up, that are here when darkness ensues upon the planet? He says in verse nine, he says, even him, speaking of Antichrist, whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. And so the first thing it tells us is that he is going to be a master deceiver. He's going to be able to explain the rapture. He's going to be able to validate his position and his authority. He's going to be able to deceive people into believing that he truly is good and truly is their savior by the works and miracles that he does. Revelation 13 says that he's able to call down fire from heaven, which is a biblical sign. He's able to give life to an inanimate object, the the, the image of the beast. He's going to be able to do those things. And it says that the world is going to wonder after the beast. He's going to lie to them with all deceivableness of unrighteousness, it says in verse 10. In them that perish because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. Now, what is the truth that he's talking about? Two things the Bible defines that truth. First of all, Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The second thing that the Bible says is the truth is the word. Jesus said in John chapter 17, verse 17, he said, Father, sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. And it says that because they 
that is the unbelieving world, received not the love of the truth. They wouldn't come to Christ who died for their salvation. They wouldn't listen to the testimony of his word that told them what was the good way, the right way, the way that leads to life. And so the result of that is verse 11. It says, and for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. And that's one of the scariest verses in the whole New Testament. In fact, one of the scariest things that can happen to a man or to a woman is the day that God ratifies your decision to reject his offer of salvation. That's the most dangerous, most scary moment that a person, a human being can face. Seven times the Bible says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Moses came and said, let my people go. And it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart and he refused the testimony of God. But then after that, it says seven more times Moses came to him. And you know what it says then? It says, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Seven times God gave him a choice and seven times he rejected. And then God ratified the decision that Pharaoh made. And God moved Pharaoh's heart to be hardened. And here it says that God is going to give certain ones over to believe the lie of Antichrist because they didn't receive the love of the truth before the day came when God took up his people. And that's scary. Now, Revelation tells us that there is an innumerable multitude that are going to get saved during the tribulation time. There's going to be 144,000 Jewish evangelists that are sharing the gospel during the tribulation to those that miss the rapture. There's going to be an angel that's going to fly through the heavens declaring the everlasting gospel. Moses and Elijah are going to be on the earth for a season during the tribulation testifying about God's truth so that people can still reach out. They can still get saved during that time. But this verse terrifies. And I have unsaved family members just like you. I have people in my life that I pray for, that I so want them to receive it, to hear it. People that I reason with, especially right now, I don't care if I sound like a moron. I don't care if I sound like a, you know, a science fiction Star Trek geek, you know, telling them about the things that are coming. Listen, this is what the Bible says. And it scares me to think that there'll be some that it says, For this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. And it says that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but rather had pleasure in unrighteousness. It's a dismal picture, isn't it? For those that don't come to Christ. But he changes gears in verse 13 and he says, but we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren. And then he says this, you are beloved of the Lord. Because God hath from the beginning chosen you unto salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. He says concerning you and I, those who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, he tells us first of all that we are beloved of God. God loves you. You know that? You know, it's one thing when someone likes you. But it's something so much more when someone loves you. And the Bible says that God loves us. He loves you. You are beloved of the Lord. The Bible says that when you come to him and accept his gift of salvation, the Bible says that you pass from darkness to light, that you pass from death to life, and you go from a place of being under God's wrath to immediately being under God's love when you accept his son, his offer of salvation. So you're beloved of the Lord, and then you realize that also he says there that you've been chosen, that he handpicked you, and he saved you because he loved you and he knows you. And then he says that the proof of that is that you have faith, that you've believed, and that you're being changed. He says, through sanctification of the Spirit. And the transformation in your life is the proof. How many people in here wrestle with sin? I mean, you don't have to raise your hand, but just, you know, you could do this internally. but, but, But sin bothers you. When you sin, it bothers you. That's proof that you're saved. If, if you can sin and it doesn't bother you. You know, you could sin and, and there's no conviction. You're just glad you didn't get caught, you know, and, and you can't wait to do it again. You're in trouble, you know. Because when you're saved, you can't do that. Because the Holy Spirit begins turning the lights on and off inside of you. 
and go, going like this with the light switch. And you're like, and your heart feels it. Your heart goes, blah, 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 blah. And you're going, oh, Lord, I don't come back right now. You know, I, this isn't a good time, you know. And, and because, because God's sanctifying you. He's changing you. He's conforming you. He's wrestling with you. He's, he's, he's reasoning with you about darkness and light. And that's proof that you're saved. You're on the right team. If you don't have that, you're in trouble. You need to get right, you know. But he says that it's through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. And then in verse 14, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, and this is the word to you and I tonight, stand fast and hold the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. And he's speaking in context concerning the teaching he just gave them. Hold on to this teaching. Don't let someone come in and say, oh, the coming of the Lord, you can't understand that. Or, oh, the tribulation, that's, you know, already passed. Or, oh, that's, you know, something that we can't understand. And seven years aren't really seven years. Paul is saying, no, hold on to the traditions which you have been taught, that which God has explained and laid out in his word, whether by word or our epistle. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. See, our disposition in light of these things is not fear. It's not uneasiness and apprehension. But he says that we've been given consolation, comfort, and good hope through grace. Because we're not looking for Antichrist. We're not looking for the tribulation. We're not looking for the crashed economy or the bombs to start blowing off in the Middle East. We're not looking for those things. We're looking for Jesus Christ to pierce through the clouds, to hear the sound of the final trumpet, to hear him say, come up here and I will show you the things which will be hereafter. And then to stand before him and see the eyes of grace as he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord where our bodies are glorified and transfigured forever, where that which we see right now through a glass darkly, we see clearly and face to face, that which we understand in part, then we know absolutely perfectly, that's what we're looking for. That's the hope and the comfort that we have. And the reason we have it is because of grace. Not because we're good enough or we deserve it or there's anything in us at all that makes us attractive to God. It's because of grace, because of God sending his son to die on a cross to shed his blood. Now, next week, when we get into chapter three, we're going to talk about what shall we then do? How do we live in light of this? If we're really living in the last days, then how do we live? Now, if we're still here next week, That's what we're going to talk about. But as we close, and just give me another minute to wrap this up here. But as we close, I want to answer one last question. And the question is this. Why why did God have us here tonight to hear this teaching? And why did God put this in the word for us to know and understand and think about and perceive why did god do that what what's god's strategy because what i've given you so far is a whole bunch of content but i haven't really answered the question of intent that is why what am i supposed to take from this and so if you would just consider with me for just a minute in in closing uh this why does god have this for us and pay attention to this because here's what it is first of all to enlighten and to inform Somebody said one time that the definition of feet, you know, your feet, the definition of feet is that which is used to find Legos in a dark room. (laughs) If you have kids, then you understand and you say amen, because nothing hurts more than a small Lego dead center in the heel, you know, except for a drumstick in between the couch cushions, you know. (laughs) But here's the point. Here's the point. I have no problem walking around my house in the pitch black of night. You know, the other, the other night I left the compressor on in the garage, you know, and we went to bed. And so it's like midnight and there's this tiny little leak. 
you know, in the compressor. And so what happens at midnight? The whole house is like erupts with noise because the compressor is going off in the middle of the night. Oh, you know, so I get out of bed and George is like, oh, the rapture, you know, and the, you know, and the baby starts crying. And, you know, all this stuff's happening, you know. So I, I get up, and I have to go shut this thing off, but because I'm, you know, half asleep, I don't turn any lights on, and, I, and so I'm walking through, I'm, I'm making my way downstairs, got to go down into the garage, find my way through, you know, all this stuff, but you know what, it didn't bother me. It was pitch black, I couldn't see a thing, but it didn't bother me, and it didn't slow me down. Do you know why? Because I know where things are. It's my house, so I understand. I know, okay, there's a wall here. I know that this stuff's about to happen. I curl my toe, okay, now I go down, six stairs, you know, turn the corner, here's the doorknob. And, and it didn't bother me all because I know where things are. Now, if I was in a place that I didn't know my surroundings and the lights went out and it was completely black, then I would be struck with terror, right? You don't, if you don't know your surroundings, then it makes you scared. And here's the point that I'm saying. Why does God tell us these things? Why is it important that we have a Bible study like this? Because the world is dark, and the world is getting darker, and God wants us to know where we are. He wants us to understand the objects that are here that might not be perfectly visible to us, that we don't crash our feet into them or something. We go, oh, oh, no, there's there's a bad economy over here. I, I, I think there's a bad economy. No, no, God said there'd be a bad economy. He says it's right there. But here's what God said. He said, I'm going to feed you. How much more value do you have than sparrows? I'm going to provide for you. Oh, oh no, there's a food shortage. Somewhere over here, there's a food shortage, and I, I can't see it, but I'm afraid of it. I, what if I'm affected by it? No, no, no. God says he's going to feed you. How much more will your heavenly Father feed you? He says, fear not, little flock. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He's going to take care of you. Oh, there's pestilence. There's, there's designer diseases. There's, there's salmonella. There's, oh, I can't see these, these objects. Listen, no pestilence is going to harm you. A thousand will fall at your right hand and 10,000 at your left hand, but God said it will not come near you. He's going to protect you. And so the point is that when you understand where these things are and what these things mean, though the scene is dark and you maybe can't see so perfectly what you're going through, you're at ease because you understand. And so God's intent behind telling us these things is not that it would cause us fear, but it would be so that we'd understand what's going on around us and what's going on in the world and that we wouldn't fear. You understand? If you hear a Bible study like this and it makes you like this and you get scared, it means one of two things. It means either you are not saved and that you need to get right with God because your time is short and you're leading off of first and your lead is too far and you're about to get thrown out and you need to get right and you need to be nervous. But if you are right with God and you're scared, it might just be that you just don't understand these things. Don't be afraid. He's got it all in control. He's got you in his hand. And so his desire is that you be informed and enlightened in this thing. And then the second thing is that you be comforted and consoled. The rapture is a comfort to us. He's got us in his hand. He's got all of the happenings in his hand. He's got your loved ones in his hand and in his heart. He hears your prayers. He knows your heart. And so take comfort in those things and pray. Pray. Pray for those people and share the word with them. Beseech them in love. Live righteously before them that they might not stumble over a bad witness. And may God be with us. Come back next week. We'll talk about what Paul says to them because, you know, that, that's a whole other Bible study is how do we live? If, if Christ could come, if Christ could come tonight, how do we live? That's an important question to answer. So we'll look at it in chapter 3 next week. Let's stand together and pray, shall we? Thank you for your patience. <laughs> Father, we, we thank you so much tonight for the word of God. We thank you, Lord, that you have declared before us your plan of the ages from the very beginning. And above that, Lord, we, as we look around the world today and we think and consider this could be, this could be those final moments. We could be that privileged generation that will not taste of death. But that will hear that glorious trumpet call. And in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, be caught up into your presence. And so we pray, Father, that you would give each one of us wisdom, 
and you would help us apply the things that we've heard in the way that only your spirit can. And that you would prepare our hearts. I pray that you'd give us wisdom and discernment as we watch and read articles and news stories. That we would be as wise as serpents, yet as harmless as doves. That each one of us might be a perfect reflection of the character and nature of Christ. That our witness wouldn't be tarnished by wicked works. But that we might be pleasing servants to you, O Lord. I pray that we would be purified, Lord, through the hope that we have. Your word says that they that have this hope purify themselves. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to walk the straight and narrow path that you've called us onto. And so we again give our lives to you tonight. We pray that you would just move into our hearts afresh. We pray that you'd burn away the dross and the film of slimy, worldly living. That you would prepare us. Be with each person here. We pray, Lord, for all of those unsaved family members that their faces are flashing across our mind even right now as we pray. We ask, Lord, that you would put Christians in their path. We ask that you would bring them conviction over their sin. That you would give them a quiet moment where they would have to deal in their minds with the question of eternal life and eternal death you would reason with them that they wouldn't be able to excuse the fact of your coming, of your truth, of your existence. And we pray, dear Lord, that you would just keep us, keep us so close to you in these times. Give us a hunger for your word, a hunger for your presence. Give us a love for your people and your ways. We pray that you be our, our guard and our guide. Go before us, Lord. We pray you be glorified in our midst, in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.